Let me, uh, let me jump in. Uh, last Saturday night, so about five nights ago, uh, my wife, Sarah, and I went on a date. And we saw the movie, um, <laughs> we saw the movie The Big Short, which is like the furthest thing from a romantic comedy or something like that, you might imagine. It is a show, it's a movie, in fact, about the financial collapse of 2007 to 2010. Oh. It's amazing. Um, really specifically about the collapse in the housing market. So don't fall asleep. Um, it was really interesting, especially if you studied finance in college. And so um, it was based on a book. And really the whole thing is about what led to this epic collapse in the housing market, which you may know nothing about, but I assure you your parents know something about. And the movie opens just for about 10 or 15 minutes with this dizzying array of facts and financial speak. And it's all kind of this fast-moving stuff. And unless you're really in tune with what's going on and kind of know what's happening, you will absolutely feel lost. And in fact, at about that point, Sarah turns over to me and she's like, I don't know what's going on. And, and I did, but like, I'm wanting to watch the movie, so I didn't want to explain to her. And so, um, because I'm terrible. And, but what was really interesting is at that point, the way they did the movie is a, a narrator came over the screen, came over the movie and said, we're guessing that most of you have no idea what's going on right now. And that's on purpose. In fact, it's almost as if the banks, they created this whole system to where no one would know what was going on. And so to explain it to you, we're going to cut out and let Margot Robbie tell you about this. Now, I didn't know who Margot Robbie was, but apparently she's uh, some kind of actress from uh, maybe New Zealand or Australia. Uh, She's pretty. Um, And so it cuts out to her, and she uh, explains this very complicated thing thing, (laughs) thing in very simple words. And Sarah understood at that point. Everyone would have understood at that point. And the movie continued to do that throughout. Sometimes they'd hit pause, and it would, uh, one time it was Selena Gomez, there was another person, they'd, they'd, they'd cut out and explain what's going on. Tonight we're beginning a study into the Old Testament book of Judges. Uh, and we're going to do Judges until spring break, and then after spring break, we're going to look at the Old Testament book of Ruth. And what's really interesting about this is the book of Ruth is a, a small book, and it takes place during the time of Judges. And so hopefully there's a good um, seamless transition into that after spring break. But um, the reality is that some of you, some of you may have read Judges. Um, most of you may not have. I, I don't know. Uh, but even if you have, my guess would be at some point in this book, you were like, yeah, I don't really know what's going on there. It's, it's dizzying in its array of, of stories, and it's, it really is not like a nice, clean, tidy little Bible story that you walk away with a good moralistic lesson from. It's just not. And we're going to see that again and again and again this semester. And so because it is that way, and because it's 3,000 years old, and it takes place in a culture and a time and a place that's just totally different than ours, what we're going to do tonight is kind of what they did in the big short. I'm going to read uh, part of chapter 1 from Judges, and I'm really just going to hit pause. And I'm going to orient us to, to what has happened uh, in the nation of Israel, really since the beginning of time, through God's people in this nation of Israel, that leads to what we're about to study for this whole semester. 
And the reason we're doing that is I don't want us to be in here just hearing all these crazy names and seeing people's heads falling off and being like, oh, my gosh, what is happening? What is RUF? I'll never come back. I don't want that. I hope you come back. Um, And so I want us to look and take time to give it a good introduction tonight. So uh, the thing that I want us to see, and this is a simple statement that we're going to unpack, is this. The reason we're looking at this book and not just jumping back into the New Testament and and reading something that Jesus said, uh, which certainly has value, we usually do it in the fall. The reason we're going to do this is because this has value for us. Because the very same things that the people back then were wrestling with and struggling with, the, the things that their hearts were entangled with are the very same things that our hearts struggle and are entangled with. So we'll see that there's really not a lot of difference at a heart level between us and them. Though there is so much time and so much difference in our cultures and things like that, our hearts are very similar. But not just that, we're also going to see that the God who is involved throughout this book, the same God that was back then is the same God that we have now. And that may be surprising for some of you. Some of you may have heard about the Old Testament or even read the Old Testament and think that that God is totally different than the New Testament God. And he's totally different than Jesus. And I want to simply say and then unpack over a number of weeks that that's not what the Bible says about God. That God is the same yesterday, today, has been forever, and will be forever. And so with that introduction, um, let me pray for us real quick and ask the Lord to help us understand this. And then let's um, chat about it. Father, I do ask that you would come and be with us, that you would teach us even as I stand up here and speak. I pray that um, anything and everything I say would be in accord with your word. And if it's not, I pray that you would cause it to fall on deaf ears. Father, I pray for those of us who are here. Uh, Certainly, in a room this size, there are a number of stories. There's so many different backgrounds, so many different good things to celebrate, and so many difficult things which... We should rightly mourn and be sad about. And so what I would ask is that your Holy Spirit, who is capable of meeting us all in very specific and individual ways, would show up and that he would come and and apply the good news of the gospel to every single person in this room tonight. Would you do that? We ask that you would, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you'll take out your handout right there, I want to read from Judges chapter 1. 1 through 10, and I'm going to skip down and and read 27 through 33. This is God's word. It says, After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went up with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and found him again and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Ouch. And Adonai Bezek and 70 kings with their, uh, said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. 
And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country in the Negev and the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in the Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba, and they defeated Shishai and Ahiman and Talmai. Down to verse 27. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ibliam and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. And Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Naholol. So the Canaanites lived among them but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Aflav or of Akzib or of Helba or of Afik or of Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites and the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, and they, so they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. I did it. Lots of crazy names that we never, ever say. This is the reading of God's Word. What in the world is going on? Most of what I'm going to say tonight is from a friend and mentor of mine named Doug who did a good study on Judges a number of years ago. So not much of this is original. Just want to say that. So here we go. Let's set this passage that we just read in all of its bizarreness and names that we've never heard in the context of the, the wider context of the Bible. And so in order to do that, we're going to go back to the beginning of the Bible, which in the Bible is the beginning of the world. Okay? So I'm going to start there. God... Uh, The Bible says that God created the world. The Bible says that God created the world and that he created it good, that it was a good world. And, And in that good world, he created mankind. He created Adam and then he created Eve. And he put them in the Garden of Eden and he gave them tremendous freedom. It was a beautiful garden. It had it had food coming off the trees. It had water in the rivers. It was a good life. And he said, you can do anything out here. Go and cultivate it. Subdue it. But that basically means make culture of it. Have babies. Have tons of sex and have tons of babies. This is going to be good. And basically, go create a civilization. But don't do this one thing. Do not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So far, so good. But in the third chapter of the Bible, you get to Genesis 3, and a new character comes into the garden, the serpent, that's what it says. The serpent comes into the garden, and this serpent charms and deceives Eve. The serpent could talk. The serpent was a manifestation of the devil. We can talk about that later if you want to grab me and talk about that. But so this snake is talking to Eve, and and this snake is causing Eve to be confused, and the snake is manipulating God's commands to Eve about not to eat of that tree. And he's saying things like, did God really say don't eat of any tree? And see, that's not true. God said don't eat of that one tree. But Eve's like, yeah, yeah, that's right. God said don't eat of any tree. And and so Satan starts to, uh, the serpent starts to create this picture and doubting God's goodness, and Eve basically buys in. And she eats of the tree, and, and Adam, who's standing right there, lets her do it. And Adam eats it. And friends, in the Bible, this is where everything goes wrong. 
In the Bible, in the, in the narrative story plot line of the Bible, this is the reason that we live in a broken and fractured and difficult world. It is the reason there is racism. It is a reason why there is injustice. It is a reason why there's oppression. It is the reason why your friends treat you the way they do. It is the reason why your parents got divorced. It is the reason why there is addiction. It is the reason for everything you can think of that is wrong. The Bible calls this the fall. Last Saturday, um, I had gotten back from the RUF. We had a ski trip last week. I got back on Friday night. Um, and after being gone for a week, usually my normal thing is uh, my wife's like, I have to leave the house because we have three little kids, and that makes you crazy after a while. And so um, I was trying to do my best uh, being a good husband and, and a present dad on Saturday. And so for me, what that does is I start doing projects and actually ignoring my kids, which now I'm feeling bad about. Um, but what I realized needed to happen Saturday was I really needed to clean out the fireplace because that's really important, right? And um, so I went out to the garage, and I got the shop vac, and I brought it inside, and I started cleaning out because as we've been burning fires, the black kind of smoke, I guess they call it, um, has, has caked around our fireplace uh, and kind of come up on the wall. It's just kind of weird. So I thought I would go vacuum that off, and so I did. I got down in there, and I'm, I'm vacuuming. I, mean, I started vacuuming everything. It's got the black stuff on it, and I'm getting after it. And I'm thinking, this is amazing. Sarah's going to love me, and the kids don't know what I'm doing. But, um, you know, there I was, and I finished, and I went and hit the off button, and when I turned around to hit the, hit the off button on the shop back, there was a black cloud in our house like none that I have ever seen and ever hope to see again because I forgot to put the dust filter on the shop back. So what that meant at the Corbin house and what it continues to mean at the Corbin house is that there is a, a not so easily removable layer of black stuff on everything. Yes. And um, that's kind of what the Bible says about what sin does. We think it's kind of contained in certain places and maybe to certain people in certain cross-sections of society. But the Bible says that sin is more like the black dust that has spread out over everything and has settled. And there's nothing that is unaffected by it. And it's a big deal and this really, take, kind of taking sin as seriously as this is kind of at the heart of what theologians would call Reformed theology. We're Reformed University Fellowship. We talk about sin a lot because we really do think it's impossible to understand how good the good news of the Bible is about Jesus and what he came to do unless we really understand how bad the bad news is. And so we talk about the reality of sin. We can't ignore it. It's throughout the Bible. It's throughout our lives. It's throughout the world. We have to talk about it. Man is not basically good. That's what the Bible says. We are not basically good people. Even apart from God coming in and doing a, a huge work of renovation and redemption in our hearts, we don't do anything that is unstained by selfishness or seeking the approval or the praise of others. We just don't, y'all. As much as we want to try and think that we do, apart from God enabling that, we don't do it. Man is not good. Our motivations are always and forever messed up. And the bad news about that is 
that God is a good and holy and righteous God, and He's a good judge. And He doesn't just judge our actions, because we can all fake being good people. We can be nice to people just for the moment or to help us get a job or to whatever. But God also judges the motivations of our heart. And that's bad news for every one of us. It's bad news. The Bible calls that bad news. So we deserve God's judgment, all of us, every one of us, every person in the world, forever and ever. Amen. We deserve God's judgment. That's what the Bible says. That's not what Brent says. But to look at it another way, last week some of us went to Winter Park for uh, this conference. And uh, it was really fun to see all of uh, the people who went fall down the mountain and um, right, like playfully fall and then get up mostly and uh, slide down. Yeah, Matt Kassebaum slid for 600 yards down a run that was insane. Uh, that was fun. Uh, I saw Kaylee Duke fall. I saw Jamie Brashear fall. Uh, Brian F- Flake fell a lot. Um, Joel Cap fell. And, uh, but it was fun, right? It popped back up. You dust off the snow and are mostly smiling after that. Well, about 10 years ago in an earlier version of this conference, a girl from TU named Amy went to Colorado and was skiing, and she fell, and she had a helmet on. And it didn't matter, because she fell so hard that she had to be life-flighted off of the mountain to a hospital. And she had to have emergency brain surgery to relieve the pressure from the swelling in the blood. Now, Amy lived. Amy lived, but Amy is still, I do believe to this day, being affected by that fall. It has ongoing consequences and ramifications for her life. And that's what the Bible says about the fall. It's ongoing. It didn't just matter back then. It matters now. And it doesn't just matter if you're not a Christian. It actually matters for those of us in here who are Christians. Sin still continues to affect us. It's why, it's why if you're not a Christian, you sometimes look at Christians and say, well, he or she doesn't look all that much different than me. They're still doing some pretty crappy things or... They're still talking about people like I talk about people. And that's why. The Christians aren't immune from sin. Jesus has paid for it, but we have not done away with it yet. But that's not the end of the matter. It's not all bad news. Yay, God does something about this. And we read in Genesis 3.15. Man, I haven't been doing the slides up there. Here we go. Genesis 3.15. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Yes, right there. And he's talking to the serpent. He's talking to the serpent. He's saying, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, the woman's offspring, shall crush your head, serpent, and your offspring, serpent, will bruise his heel. Okay? The he in there is the offspring of the woman. The you is the serpent and his offspring. So what does that mean? What is God trying to tell the serpent in this? Well, it's really interesting because God is is doing something here. He had commanded Adam and Eve not to eat of that tree, and they did it. And so they are deserving of death. God said, if you eat of it, you will surely die. And yet God doesn't just kill them on the spot. He enters in, and he starts doing something. What does he do? Well, he looks at Adam and Eve before this. We didn't read it, but up to verse 14, he's talked to them. And now he's talking to the snake, and he says, I will put enmity between you, your offspring, and her offspring. Now, enmity means enemies. It means I'm going to put hatred there. There will be warfare between your offspring and her offspring. 
God is saying there is going to be a cosmic battle that happens. This is not a verse about why people hate snakes, although most people do hate snakes. That's not what this is about. God is saying there is going to be a battle, a cosmic battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Friends, what we're talking about, in th- what God is talking about in this passage and what we're going to talk about this semester, and it's one of the reasons maybe that you don't believe in Christianity. It's certainly one of the reasons why people kind of in our day and age say, eh, no thanks. What this passage is introducing is that there is a war between God's people and Satan's people. There is a real war going on. And in the Old Testament, where we're going to spend this whole semester, that war looks a certain way. It's physical. It's an actual war. And we're going to talk about all of this stuff, I promise. In the New Testament, it does look a bit different, and we're going to talk about that too. But it is a war. The serpent is a manifestation of the devil, I said. And so what happens here is that this this cosmic war is set up, and it doesn't take like a long time at all before it's enacted. So Genesis chapter 4 We have a story of Cain and Abel. You may or may not know that, but Cain and Abel were brothers. They were the sons of Adam and Eve. And what happens? Cain kills his brother Abel. There is already this hatred and this animosity and this warfare is coming out already. Cain shows himself to be of the line of the offspring of the devil. Hatred is filling his heart. Murderous thoughts are filling his heart. Abel, certainly he wasn't perfect. No one after the fall is perfect or good. But he gets killed by his brother for very, very small reason, jealousy. And this plays on again. We see it in the rest of the Bible. uh, Jacob and Esau. There's enmity there. They're fighting their whole lives. Uh, We go on, and it doesn't just take place at an individual level. As it goes further out in the Bible, it goes into these individuals have families, and they become clans, and they become nations. And we get to the book of Exodus, and we read that God's people, that the seed of the woman, are being enslaved by a nation that throughout the book of Exodus is characterized as the nation, basically the nation of the devil, Egypt. They are, they are not a good people or anything. They, they are really doing terrible things. And the leader of Egypt is the Pharaoh, and Pharaoh tries to totally wipe out the seed of the woman. He declares a genocide on them. But God is at work, and God intervenes, and God protects one person uh, he protects many of them, but he, he protects and raises up someone called Moses. And Moses leads God's people out of Egypt and into freedom where they can worship him. Right? So this cosmic war is playing out throughout the Old Testament. And you have to understand that because judges, as you just read right there and right off the bat, they're asking, who need, who's going to go up to war against the Canaanites? And what you see right there is this very war that is set up in Genesis 3. The Old Testament is the beginning and the background of God's story of redemption. And friends, it does not always look like you and I would want it to look. It is not like a precious moments figurine where everybody's playing harps and like sitting on clouds and smoking heavenly dope. And like that's just not the Bible. It's not. It's a war. And, and I don't really, like, I'm not trying to be extreme. I'm not trying to be overly confrontational about this. 
I just want to be honest about it because it's in the Bible. And probably at some point, if you haven't asked this question, you're going to ask it. What is going on? So, that's what's happening in the Old Testament. Friends, you have to hear what I'm about to tell you. That's already up on the screen. God's story of redemption is absolutely not a story of good people versus bad people. It's just not. Because after Genesis 3, there are no good people. That is far too simplistic. It is a battle between the people who God has chosen and who he's redeeming, and it is a battle against their enemies. It's not good versus bad. Jesus, in fact, we we know this because Jesus in his day is talking to some of the best people. These people were the upright, very moral, religious people of his day. And he looks right at them and says what's up on the screen right there. You are of your father, the devil. That's how to pick a fight. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The devil was a murderer and deceiver from the beginning. Yep, that's what we see from the very beginning. Satan has set up his kingdom against God and his people. And this is what we see in Judges. Now, um, I put a passage in your handout, and I want you to open it and look at it. I didn't read it earlier, but I'm going to read it now. Um, as I mentioned, I'm not trying to be uh, extreme or whatever. I just, we have to read this so we can understand it. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, God is commanding his people that they are to go and drive out and kill and, and totally do away with everything that is in this land that he is giving them. Because the people in the land that he is giving them are Satan's people. That's hard. I get it. I'm just going to read it for us. Deuteronomy 7, 1 and 2. When the Lord God brings you into the land, excuse me, when the Lord God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. There's a war going on. And I don't think it's really fair for me to stand up here and present Christianity as, just, as a religion that just says, hey, let's just all get along. Like, let's put aside our differences and pretend that we all believe the same thing. Certainly, we are not still carrying out war on people physically. Certainly, hallelujah, praise Jesus. That's not how he's spreading his good news right now. But it's in there, and we're going to talk about it. Okay? Okay. Most of the time, actually, this semester, we're not even going to be looking at the bad people. We're going to be looking at the sins and the failings of God's people, of the church, of the Israel, who is like the Old Testament church. And we're going to be talking about that a lot more. And so we need to say that there's two sides, those who are on God's side and those who are not. And I know I keep saying this, but you've just got to hear it. And it should start raising the question in your mind. Whose side am I on? Am I on God's side? Am I part of the offspring of the woman? Or am I I aligned with Satan? Am I an enemy of God? 
Am I still not right with God because I have, I'm a sinner and I haven't ever confessed that and brought it to him and told him I'm sorry, I need forgiveness? The Bible says there's two kinds of people and that's it. You're either aligned with God and with him or you are against him. That's the Bible, that's not me. But. In the Bible, but is a very good word. But something else happens in Genesis 3.15. God doesn't just put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of Satan, the seed of the snake. He says something else. He said, you will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. God is talking to the serpent, and he tells Satan, the you in this verse, he says, Satan, you're going to have your day. You're going to cause all kinds of pain, and you're going to inflict You're going to be bothersome to the seed of the woman. You're going to nip at his heel. Think about how annoying that would be. Just nip, 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 nip. Like, like a little chihuahua. Um, but worse. <laughs> but he looks and says, but, but he will crush your head. One of those is a, is a nuisance. The other one is a mortal wound. And friends, when, when God says he will crush your head, that is a singular, it's a masculine nominative singular. You don't know what that means, but trust me, in Hebrew, that's talking about one person who is going to come and crush the head of the serpent. So who is that in the Bible? It's Jesus. Jesus is the answer to that. He's the answer to sin. He's the answer to everything in the Bible. He's the ultimate judge. He's the ultimate deliverer. He's the ultimate redeemer. He is the ultimate king. He's the mighty warrior. His name is King Jesus. And he crushes Satan's head at the cross and in his resurrection. Because, friends, death is the biggest It's the biggest weapon that Satan has. He causes us to fear it, to be anxious over it, to try and and create a fountain of life and cultures and for centuries and millennia have been trying to find the secret of youth so they don't have to die. And Jesus comes and he conquers death. And he says, even though you die, if you're with me, you will live. And Jesus says, says, I am the way and the truth and the life. If you're with me, you live. And so he is one in the resurrection. He won. And what, what are we doing now? Why is Satan still seemingly doing things in this world? Well, we are waiting for the final resolution of this. The final battle took place at the cross and the resurrection, y'all. It's not still up in the air. This is not a basketball game going down to the last minute. Jesus already won. He has. Hallelujah. Christianity is like a parade that is just marching around saying, Jesus won. Jesus won. Here's how to deal with what's going on now until he comes again. But he has won the battle. So that's what the Bible is about. It's about Jesus. Good news and great news, actually, for God's people and really terrible news if you're not one of God's people. The Old Testament, the book of Judges, is not just about wrath, and the New Testament is not just about grace. The Old Testament is not just about moralism. We don't go to the Old Testament and and look for characters to be like, you know, you go and do what David did when he's doing good things, but don't go sleep with Bathsheba or have her husband killed. That's bad. Um, Old Testament is not moralism. The Old Testament is a setup for Jesus. It's one big story, y'all. And Jesus is the victor. He's the winner. And so we're going to talk about that. The summary of the whole semester happens at the very end of Judges. And it's this verse up here, and it says this. 
that there was no king in Israel. The story of Judges is just a downward spiral of things going from bad to worse. And it ends by saying there was no king in Israel. Everybody did what was right in his own eyes. People did what they thought was right. It seemed right in their eyes in chapter 1 of Judges that you just read and you just looked at. It seemed okay for them to not completely drive out the people Even though in Deuteronomy 7, God said, you have to drive them out. Because if you don't, and we're going to look at this next week, if you don't, you're going to start commingling with them, and you're going to start marrying them. And and their gods, you're going to start wanting their gods. It's not going to go well for you. I'm telling you, you need to drive them out. But they didn't. Look at 27 through 33. And they did not drive them out, and they did not drive them out, and they left them there, and they did not drive them out again and again and again. They thought it was right in their own eyes, so they didn't do it. But it wasn't just them that do what's right in their own eyes. It's us. It's, it, it's you. It's me. It's everybody. We think we know what is best for ourselves. And we set a course in our life to try and do that. And some of you have been spared from some of the more painful aspects of that. But some of you haven't. And some of you have done things maybe recently or maybe a little bit more in the distant past, which you know has affected you or has affected others or is still affecting you. When we try to do what's right in our own own eyes, it never, never goes well for us. There's a book called Unchristian that was written a few years ago by a guy named Dave Kinnaman and Gabe Lyon. And they talk about the church's incredible integrity problem, right? The church is not necessarily a pretty thing, though Jesus loves it and died for it. They write, in virtually every study we conduct, representing thousands of interviews every year, born-again Christians fail to display much attitudinal or behavioral evidence of transformed lives. Based on a study we did in 2007, we found that most of the lifestyle activities of born-again Christians were statistically equivalent to those who would not claim to be born-again Christians. They did what was right in their own eyes. We do what's right in our own eyes. They go on and say, when, uh, when, we, when asked to identify their activities over the last 30 days, Christians, believers, were just as likely to bet or to gamble, to visit a pornographic website, to take something that did not belong to them, to consult a medium or a psychic, to physically fight or abuse someone, to have consumed enough alcohol to be considered legally drunk, to have used an illegal non-prescription drug, to have said something to someone that was not true, to have gotten back at someone for something he or she did, and to have said mean things behind another person's back. There was no difference between those who said they were born-again Christians and those who weren't. Mm, I, I hate that stuff. I do. I hate that statistical stuff. I know it's true because I know my own heart, but I hate it. And that's the story of Judges. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. God's people stopped listening to God. They stopped following God. They started blending in. And we will see this semester absolutely this, that you and I and the people back then, no one was ever created to do what was right in his own eyes. We were not created to give our highest allegiance to a democracy democracy where we decide what we think is best. Friends, you are in the image of God. God made you. And that means you were created to give your highest allegiance to a monarch, to a king, And it's King Jesus. And apart from him, your life is simply never going to make sense. And I realize that's a big claim, and I realize some of you don't believe that. That's okay. 
I hope you'll keep coming back and, and listen and figure out why it is that I would say something like that. I'm going to close with this. Where does that leave you? Where does that leave you? Where are you? Did you do anything unchristian over the break? What about, what about last semester? Have you done anything recently that you really deeply regret? What about that thing or those things that you thought you would never do? Are you doing what's right in your own eyes, trying to make life work for you? I remember showing up at OU my freshman year in 99. And uh, it always feels weird um, talking to college students. Uh, so 19 and I show up, and I remember that first night walking onto campus thinking, my parents had left, I moved in, and I step out and think, holy cow, this is a lot of freedom. I could do whatever I want, and no one would know. Some of you have felt that, and some of you have gone abroad, and you really feel that. And you're like, good grief, nobody knows me. And you took advantage of that. Have you done that? Have you experienced the guilt that comes from knowing you've done something you shouldn't have done? Have you experienced the pain of shame and knowing how this stuff, it just doesn't go away. It exists like that black dust on our lives and it's there and it's hard to get rid of. Are you really, if you're a Christian, are you really that different than the people who are admittedly not? Do you treat your sexuality any different than them? I know maybe you're not having sex, but what about oral sex? Do you treat your money any differently differently than non-Christians would? The Bible says you should. How about greed? What about your heart? What about pride? What about all of this stuff that the Bible says it's, it's just all ugly? Are you any different? Does it look different? So we're going to look at successes and failures this semester, but we have to think about ourselves. We have to look at the successes and the failures and the fractures of our own hearts. And we're going to do all of this with the backdrop of Jesus. So I will not, I haven't done it tonight in this whole semester, I will not try to present an image of Christianity that is just about being good or doing good. This RUF is not about coming and pulling yourself together and being strong and being together. It's just not because that is fake. We all get that. That doesn't work. We are taking the reality of sin, the reality of the Bible, and saying that's who we are. But friends, do you know that Jesus came for sinners? He came to offer forgiveness. He came to offer pardon. He came to offer you restoration with the God, whom if you're not in Christ yet, your life is fractured. You are not one of his people. And that's not good. That's not going to end well for you. Jesus came to offer you His grace and His mercy and His love and His forgiveness. And friends, you can't earn it. You won't deserve it ever, ever, ever. You simply receive it. You receive it like a gift. No one pays for a gift. It's given to you. You take it. So if you're someone who needs that tonight, I pray that you would receive it. The Apostle Peter says this, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, Jesus, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. What about you? Have you returned to the shepherd who oversees your soul? Are you still trying to do what's right in your own eyes? Friends, this is an invitation to Jesus tonight. And it's an invitation to come back to RUF every week 
and to consider Him and what Christianity means and says. We hope you'll come back. Let me pray for us.